I pod you, I cast with you once upon a dream. <laughs> I pod you, that cast in your ears is so familiar a gleam. <laughs> very good. Very, very beautiful. Thank you. Not my funniest one, but like, how how can it not be once upon a dream? I how know. How can it not? That's the main song for this entire movie. We don't even have time to talk about the cold open that much. We got to get to the episode. There's so much to discuss. And welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. Not that that last part is relevant to this movie. <laughs> For sure. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Can you go ahead and just start us off with a quick merry weather? Ooh. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, the visual component for that does not show. Yes, I will need you or dad to take a video of yourself doing it uh, <laughs> so that we can post that on Twitter at Mouse or on our website at MemomMouse.com so everyone can see mom doing the Merryweather, which is one <laughs> of her, I don't know if you'd call it a party trick, but it's like, it's it's one of those type things. It's one of my signature jokes. As if it was a dad joke, but it's a mom joke. There you go. This week on the program, we are, uh, I don't know if anyone maybe has picked up on this <laughs> context clues, but we are continuing the silver era with 1959 Sleeping Beauty, supervising director Clyde Geronimi, and also credited as directors are Eric Larson, Wolfgang Reitherman, and Les Clark. Mm-hmm. Bit of a different group this time. Yep, and it's the best. It Goodbye, is. everybody. <laughs> no, I, I guess we could talk about it. We need to talk about it. What does this movie mean to you? In case you haven't realized already, Sleeping Beauty is one of my all-time favorites. I have many Disney tchotchkes related to this movie. I think it was one of the first ones we got to own on VHS when I was growing up, the ones my grandma was giving us, because it was first released on VHS in 86, so we would have owned it pretty early in our collecting of the movies. So I have seen this movie so many times. I purchased it on both DVD and then later on Blu-ray because I love it so much. I can't think what else to say maybe about why I love it. I mean, it's just, we're going to go into that. That's the thing. Right. This episode, and I believe, I, well, okay, I definitely said this on a previous recording. I can't remember if it made it into an edited episode. This episode has been a little intimidating for me from the start. It's like, this movie is almost hard to talk about because it's just like, it's perfect. It's so perfect and beautiful and... It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, like, just watch it and experience it and you probably get it. And because it's so visual, right, I, I do think we will create a good episode for you all. Having watched it, having prepared, I feel like I have a lot to contribute. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think that's totally valid to just be like, it's obviously one of the best. Right. Because it is. 
Now, what does the character of Meriwether mean to you? <laughs> and how many Meriwether things do you own currently? Well, I have a little Meriwether figurine. I have a mug that's the Sleeping Beauty mug that has Meriwether on it, of course, because it has several characters from the movie. I also collect a few American Girl dolls, and I made the Three Good Fairies costumes for them as one of the first costumes I ever made for my dolls, because I love this movie so much. Later, I made an Aurora costume when I had four dolls, so I have the whole group. There you go. <laughs> Meriwether is my favorite because she is the practical one of the three. She is the one who is able to get things done, it seems. She seems like the smartest of the group, the yes. most logical. She's right about everything. Yes, I identify with Meriwether. <laughs> yep. So she's my favorite. This movie to me, I mean, I don't know if I have exactly the same kind of personal connection to it because for me it was always mom's favorite. But of course I've watched this movie many times. I've always liked it. When I got a little older, I realized, oh, this truly is one of the best. Yeah. And to me, this is the first perfect movie that we have covered on the podcast. Now- Obviously, that's a somewhat subjective and loaded term. You know, what is a perfect movie? Uh -huh. And there are a lot of criticisms that people have of this movie, even today. Mm -hmm. Ever since it came out, people have had criticisms of it of, well, you know, obviously the plot is fairly thin. Most of the characters don't really have arcs. It's not like there's a lot of thematic depth to this movie. Mm -hmm. To me, when I think of a perfect movie, when I call something that, I really think of the Matt Zoller Seitz definition. MZS is a film critic who now writes for RogerEbert.com, where he said that a perfect movie is one where any change could only make it different, not better. Interesting. And that's how I feel about this movie. You could, like, change it to be plottier, mm -hmm. and it might still be very good. Mm -hmm. You could change the characters around. You could, you know, change things about it. But nothing would make it better. What this movie is to me, and why I think it does feel like this totally perfect object, despite what could be seen as plot problems, mm -hmm. is that for the... 70-ish minutes, 75 minutes, whatever, that you are watching this movie, you really feel just transported to this other world. Yeah, you really do. You are transported to this world of magic and fantasy and fairy tale. And what the good fairies especially do in this movie doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but it's like that's part of the magic. These are like these unknowable magic creatures. Mm -hmm. They don't have to follow human logic. Like if you're <laughs> that bought into the world, you hopefully, at least I, stop caring about, you know, that stuff. Yeah, this was one of the first ones that we were watching that I had a really hard time t taking notes on things while we were watching because I just wanted to watch it and fall into it again and be engrossed no matter how many times I watch it. It's always good. Yes. I always get chills at the right moments, you know? <laughs> yes, I totally had goosebumps at the ending. Yeah. And I said that and you were like, me too. Even though, I mean, we know the prince is going to slay the <laughs> dragon. Even if we hadn't seen this movie 6,000 times. Yeah. You know, we've seen a movie, so we know <laughs> how it's going to play out. But at right. the same time, it really is just thrilling. Mm -hmm. I agree. Absolutely. The The music and the visuals turn this movie into an audiovisual experience yeah. that 
is more than the sum of its parts. Yep. And it's funny, and it has a fun <laughs> plot, and it has better characters than a lot of Disney movies, and yeah. it has amazing performances. And I really liked how you compared it to this Disney princess trilogy, basically, we have in the in the Walt years. Yes. With Snow White, Cinderella, and Sleeping Beauty. And this one feels like we took everything we learned from Snow White and Cinderella and brought it together in Sleeping Beauty and made the best one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a lot more princess movies later that are different and some are also very good. But of the early ones, this one really stands out. And, you know, that's what I said while we were watching it as I did my research afterwards. That's not exactly an opinion that's unique to me. Mm-hmm. This movie is often referred to as the peak of early Disney animation, like of the golden and silver eras. Yeah, makes sense. And let's talk about why that is. Yeah. You did a lot more research for this movie than me, and Mm -hmm. also you've loved it a lot longer. You've been thinking about it a lot more. So (laughs) I'll give kind of the brief overview. Yeah. Work on this movie started in 1950. That's when Walt Disney really was like, this is going to be a movie that we make, Sleeping Beauty. Obviously, Cinderella had just come out and had been a big hit. Yeah. Um, And in fact, they took some unused elements from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Cinderella to make this movie. Because they knew what they were doing, right? They knew, like, well, we're going to do another princess one. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing. Find, you know, why exactly they wanted to do Sleeping Beauty, but it's because I don't think there's, like... I think it's just exactly what you think it is. Like, okay, time for another princess story. Yeah, but also they wanted to... Walt was apparently really wanting to do a movie where they took the concept art, right? And they kept that theme throughout the entire movie. A lot of times the concept art would be brilliant and wonderful and very seldom did those exact images translate exactly to the final movie, right? Things were softened or curved up more or made more simple to make the animation a little easier, whatever. And he decided, I want one of them to be the exact theme, concept, art style throughout. Backgrounds, characters, everything must mesh and everything must follow a particular visual style. That's absolutely correct. And one thing that kept coming up in quotes that I read from Walt about this movie is he talked about it being truly a moving painting. Yeah. That's kind of this was kind of his idea rather than a moving picture and obviously the tapestry thing mm-hmm. comes into play in a moment here. Yeah, a moving illustration. Right. And it's exactly what you were talking about where a movie is a series of compromises, any movie, but especially, you know, we've talked about some of the compromises that had to be made with a lot of these movies. And this is the one where he was like, we've had a string of successes. We have a ton of money. We're not going to compromise anything. Mm -hmm. We're going to take almost 10 years to make it. It's going to cost more than twice as much as any of the other silver era films so far. Yeah. We're going to frustrate every (laughs) single one of the animators. Yep. And we're going to go into debt again and have to have massive layoffs because this movie didn't do it very well. But by God, we are going to produce, you know, the apotheosis (laughs) of animation. And they did. Animation art. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So John Hench, who was 
well, I suppose you could describe him as uh, Walt Disney's henchman. <laughs> but I'm Tish. But he really was like, he was kind of a creative director. He worked on uh, Disney attractions and theme parks and stuff on the movies. And he was just one of Walt's guys. He was the one who brought the idea of tapestries to Walt. Mm-hmm. And Walt was like, yes, we're doing that. And one of the most important people on this movie was Avond Earl. Ivan. I think is Ivan. Yeah. Ivan Earl. Earl. At least that's how they say it on the uh, bonus features on the movies <laughs> discs. <laughs> well, I believe it. Ivan Earl, who joins Walt Disney Productions in 1951. He was a painter and illustrator. Yeah. He worked on several of the shorts. He was also a background artist on Peter Pan. There you go. He was the lead background artist for this. Lead everything artist for this. Right, because Walt forced everyone else to fit to his style. And it's what you were talking about where Mary Blair, who did most of the concept art for Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the other movies we've talked about, especially of this era. You know, Walt looked at her concept art and then looked at the finished product and it's not as detailed, it's not as rich. He was always a little disappointed by it. And so this one, he was like, we are following Earl's concept art. It Mm -hmm. is going to look as good at that. He gets creative control of all character designs and the colors for everybody's clothes and everything in the picture And everybody basically had to follow his plans. There was a little bit of give and take, but basically what he said went. And as a result, again, there were so many like arguments and (laughs) fights on this movie. The animators hated working on it. There are so many, you know, quotes they would say where it's like, I hate this, I hate that. Yeah, well, because they like having the more rounded characters. They think the they thought the style of those was easier to make relatable. And right. the backgrounds were so detailed and rich and beautiful that they felt like their characters sometimes got lost in the backgrounds because the backgrounds were so good. Right. And they were producing like... At, at certain points of the project, they were producing one second of animation per day. I know, it was crazy. And the background images, which would usually take a day to produce, were taking like eight or nine days for one background image. Which again, is why this movie took nine years to make its yeah. production. It's, uh, its release date rather kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. Yeah, especially because they pretty much had the story nailed down by 1952. Which was also a source of frustration for the people working on the story committees because Walt wasn't really showing up to the story meetings. Mm-hmm. He wasn't approving their story ideas. And he wasn't super involved through a lot of this movie despite being, at the same time, the taskmaster who was like, no, you have to do it this incredibly slow way. Because, of course, he was working on Disneyland. Exactly. They were building Disneyland at the same time, which was a huge deal. And so, of course, he was also doing the disneyland tv show leading up to disneyland's opening and he was extremely involved in a lot of projects right he was also working on live action movies during this time most notably mary poppins yeah so he was like you guys have to do this incredibly hard animation process and we have to get this story right and you know this movie is going to be a big deal and they're like so you're going to help, right? And he's like, what? I can't hear. Goodbye. <laughs> I, have to, I have to go make that Mr. Toad ride where you go to hell. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm busy. <laughs> he even one of the things he said was fewer side plots. No mice like Cinderella. You know, no good seven dwarfs <laughs> business. Yes. Although I almost feel like you could say the fairies are a side plot, but they guess they're more of the main plot. 
You could really almost call this movie The Three Good Fairies because they probably have the most screen time. Yeah, I was going to say, I would call them the main characters of the film, honestly. It's true. I did want to shout out just a couple of the animators who worked on this. Uh, obviously, as with all these Silver Era movies, we are skipping over a ton of context. To be honest, like I did more reading on this movie than I normally do. Maybe I shouldn't say that. And I still had a hard time following a lot of it. Like <laughs> there were just... Because it was in production for so long and there were so many changes. Like, I don't know. I would have to be an actual historian, I think. But two things I did want to shout out. Chuck Jones spent four months working on this movie. Chuck (laughs) Jones, one of the most famous, if not the single most famous, animation directors for Warner Brothers cartoons. And the reason he was not working on the Warner Brothers cartoons, like the Looney Tunes or anything, is because Warner Brothers thought that the 3D film would replace animation. Huh. Not just that, like, 3D was the new fad they wanted to invest into, but, like, if people have 3D, they won't want animation, which is just, like, not correlating. Yeah, that's weird. (laughs) Anyway, that failed. And so four (laughs) months later, he was back. But he did work on this movie a little bit. Also, this is the first Disney movie that was worked on by Don Bluth. Ah. He was probably very young. Yes, he was an assistant animator who would come back and work for Disney kind of, you know, properly in Mm -hmm. the 1970s and then would go on to do such films as An American Tale and uh, the incredibly strange Titan AE, which is like, what if Treasure Planet, but not. (laughs) Of course, there was some new technology used in this movie. It was filmed in Super Technorama 70mm. Right. Which is why it's very wide screen, like Lady and the Tramp. Which really showed, really shows off those great backgrounds. And 70 millimeter, for anyone who doesn't know, this refers to the type of film used. There's primarily 35 millimeter film Mm -hmm. uh, is what was used up to this point. And around here is when 70 millimeter film kind of gets invented. 35 millimeter film has about 200 or 2000 rather, sorry, 2000 pixels of detail. Mm -hmm. So give or take the quality of a Mm Blu-ray. 70 millimeter film has about 8,000 pixels <laughs> of detail. So 8K. Yeah. Wow. So it's a huge difference in quality. And yes, the ultra wide screen and the fact that they're using 70 millimeter film makes it look great. Mm-hmm. You know, it lets you pick up all those details, but it was yet another huge expense yeah. for the production and very frustrating. Mm-hmm. It's also the first one with the sound being in six channel surround sound. That's correct. Speaking of sound, mm-hmm. one of the other things about this movie that, I mean, we can't understate the importance of is the music. Right. Originally, they were apparently just going to have music like from the previous musicals like Cinderella and stuff where they would have a couple of their songmen just make a bunch of songs for it. And then they came up with the idea of using the music from the Tchaikovsky Ballet. And that was a way better idea. (laughs) Correct. Jack Lawrence and Sammy Fain were signed on to compose the score and write songs. They had both worked on Peter Pan and Sammy Fain had also worked on Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. Maybe another one. But either way, as you say, kind of the in-house Disney songwriters in 1952 and then 53, they decide to use Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty Ballet. And those two, Lawrence and Fane, wrote Once Upon a Dream, 
based on the main theme of the ballet. Yeah. They wrote the words to that. And then the rest of the music was done by George Bruns. George Bruns is an incredibly important figure in Disney. Mm -hmm. He worked on several shorts and some of the live action movies. But in terms of the movies we're going to talk about, he did the music for Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, Sword in the Stone, The Jungle Book, The Aristocats, Robin Hood. Wow, he just back-to-back, didn't he? Yeah, and if you asked me which Disney movie had the best music, it would probably be one of those. (laughs) Like, I feel like Sleeping Beauty, Jungle Book, Robin Hood especially. Yeah. But, I mean, all of those movies have incredibly iconic iconic songs. We get Cruella de Vil. I mean, he wrote that. The Aristocats is not a particularly good movie, at least the last time I saw it. (laughs) But the one thing everybody remembers about it is everybody wants to be a cat. Yeah. He also, among some of his other songs he did for Disney, he did the Pirates of the Caribbean song, Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me. Oh, wow. And noted earworm, (laughs) The Ballad of Davy Crockett. Of course. (laughs) He was nominated for four Academy Awards and nominated for three Grammy Awards. He's the best. He's the man. He's the best. This is the Mm. best era of Disney music. Yeah. And this could be argued to be his greatest achievement. Mm -hmm. He really had to work hard. The ballet is four hours long. Yeah. So he had a ton of music to pick. He had to figure out how to reorchestrate it to, you know, sync up with the movie. He figured out how to use the themes. Uh, He was quoted as saying that it would have been easier just to compose new music. (laughs) I'm sure. It is absolutely incredible and contributes so much to this movie. It really does. It makes the music feel like it fits the art style of the images so well. Right. The the very classical feel yeah. of this movie. So that's all I have to talk about specifically in terms of production. I mean, as usual, they used live action reference. Um, we've talked about that before, so there's nothing really new in that. Yeah, let's. we can go ahead and talk about the cast real quick. Mm-hmm. This is really where they kind of just took their all-stars it feels like mm-hmm. for a lot of these parts. Maleficent is Eleanor Audley, yeah. who was also Lady Tremaine. Yeah. We talked about her on that episode and how great it is that she got to voice two of the best Disney villains. It's true. And so different. Mm-hmm. The fairies are uh, Barbara Luddy, who was Lady and is Meriwether. Mm-hmm. Verna Felton, who is playing Flora, who, of course, she was the fairy godmother, and here she's playing What If the Fairy Godmother Was Dumb? (laughs) Or, you know, not as smart. Because Fauna is the dumber one, and she was done by Barbara Jo Allen. Mm -hmm. Who had not been in a previous Disney movie, uh, but was, you know, a a well-respected actress, and especially radio at this time. And she's in one of the later ones, and I'm trying to remember which one it is. The Sword and the Stone, she's the scullery maid. Yeah. So we'll hear her again. (laughs) Saracta! I believe that's her. That is her. Let's see. We got Bill Thompson, Smee as King Hubert. Yep. Hans Conried is kind of around. He does the voice of the Herald. He also did the uh, live action performance for King Stefan. Mm -hmm. He, of course, was Captain Hook. We got Pinto Kolvig doing the voices of some goons. We got, you know, a lot of people. The two main roles, Prince Philip and Princess Aurora... They specifically cast singers. Yeah. Mary Costa and Bill Shirley. Mary Costa, they spent three years trying to find their Aurora. In 1952, Mary Costa was at a dinner party where she sang 
and she was approached by one of the composers who was contributing to the movie who was like, I don't want to shock you, but I've been looking for Aurora for three years and I want to set up an edition. Would you do it? <laughs> she and uh, the actor playing Philip, Bill Shirley, auditioned with the song Once Upon a Dream. Of course, she got the part. Yep. And so did he. So it's uh, obviously it's a, it's a very good cast. Mm-hmm. Now, when this movie was released, it did not do super well. Yeah, but the main problem with that is it cost so much to make. Correct. It made $5.3 million, which, again, for any of the other Silver Era movies up to this point, would have been a substantial profit. But Sleeping Beauty cost $6 million. Yeah. It was the second highest grossing movie of the year after Ben-Hur, mm. and it still isn't considered a success. Yeah. So crazy. <laughs> it also was not particularly well-reviewed. A lot of the critics at the time were like, they're just doing Snow White and Cinderella again. I did see a few of those reviews and I was like, did you even watch this movie? <laughs> well, I think, again, it comes down to what we were talking about with Alice in Wonderland, where animation was not respected yeah. as an art form. I mean, we just talked about how Warner Brothers saw animation the same way as 3D. Like, it's a gimmick. Yeah. So I think they just, a lot of the, you know, kind of mainstream writers of this time just didn't have the vocabulary to realize that this is an incredible work of art yeah they're only looking at plot which is the least interesting part of any movie and it's true there are a lot of elements that are similar to snow white and similar to cinderella a lot of things they did work their hardest to try to make sure the story was a little different you know, they mm -hmm. didn't, they tried as much as possible not to reuse the same ideas, but you're just going right. to have some overlap. But it's also, at least, you know, in our opinion, and as we've said many times, it's the best version of it. It is. Like, it really is. If anything, you ding those other two movies now in <laughs> retrospect for like not being Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. I mean, it makes the animation in Snow White look so childish almost. <laughs> do you yes. know what I mean? No, I do. I do. <laughs> Not that Snow White wasn't a great achievement at the time. Right. But you're like, ah, now they have grown up. <laughs> no other movie looks like this. And it makes you wish that every movie was based on medieval tapestries <laughs> using Russian ballet music. Like it really does. Yeah. Now, of course, I want to talk about the home video release a little bit. Mm -hmm. We watch this on Disney Plus per use, even though mm -hmm. you own it on Blu-ray. And DVD. <laughs> and DVD. And we were worried it was going to look bad. Yeah. Thank goodness it does not. It yeah. is not one of those terrible Blu-ray releases. So I looked into it. Mm -hmm. I looked into the restoration process. They actually started from an original negative of the film uh. rather than tracing over like the DVD version. Uh. They still did that tracing stuff kind of. They did. I think I saw that too. They still were trying to remove all of the grain. Mm -hmm. All the film grain. And also, the original negatives, we talked about that 75mm, were so high definition, you could actually see the paper grain on the backgrounds. Whoa. So they scrubbed all of that, which Aww. we've talked about it. <laughs> I like film grain, and I would have loved to see that paper. You know, these were physical objects made by real people. It's okay for them not to be perfect. Their argument was that they were fixing any mistake that the animators at the time would have fixed if they could have. Like, oh, mm. there's a dot of the wrong color paint here. Mm -hmm. Well, they would have wanted to fix that. Which, 
I don't know. The other thing is their restoration team was very small. They had a few animators, some of whom had actually studied under the nine old men. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a lot of the restorations we've talked about so far of the Silver Era, like Alice in Wonderland, they were done overseas Mm -hmm. in some Taiwanese animation studio with, I'm sure, horrific working conditions. Whereas these were done in-house by animators who really cared. Mm -hmm. Also, the Blu-ray release is the first one, the first home video release that is actually released in the ultra super wide definition format. Yeah. So it has details at the sides of the frame that you couldn't have seen on home video previously. Mm -hmm. So it is actually a good restoration. Mm -hmm. Um, And they did this before they did any of the other Blu-ray restorations. Yeah, this was like first. Yeah, so I think after this, they kind of got lazy. They were (laughs) like, well, we'll do the same process, but not as good. We'll make the best one the best. And after that, we don't care. I guess. (laughs) So, you know, I wish they'd left the film grain in, but this is a good restoration. You can purchase this Blu-ray with Mm -hmm. confidence or watch it on Disney Plus and not be depressed by how flat everything looks. Mm -hmm. That's all I really have to say. Yeah, I I didn't have anything else, I don't think, for uh, for the background. Well... Let's get into it. Sleeping Beauty. You got the main title song, of course, Once Upon a Dream, that we've already mentioned. I do want to apologize. Somehow when we did the Cinderella episode, I had a real brain fart and I said that the name of the song was something else that had the word wish in it. And I don't even remember what I said, but when I listened to that episode when it was done, I was like, what was I thinking? So (laughs) it's Once Upon a Dream. I know it's Once Upon a Dream. I'm really embarrassed I didn't say Once Upon a Dream in the Cinderella episode. Oh, well. Yes, and this is a good uh, time to remind everyone that we do now have a mailbag set up. You can send your uh, scathing indictments <laughs> of mom for saying the wrong song name to memommouse at gmail.com. Yep. That's memommouse, M-E-M-O-M-M-O-U-S-E at gmail.com. But yeah, this is like, I think we hear Once Upon a Dream at least three times four times yeah depending on if you count like prince philip picking up his dad and singing it for a little bit as a reprise (laughs) or not but it's all over this movie and you know what not sick of it yep i'll listen to it right now it's a really good song it is is the thing (laughs) we of course have a sleeping beauty book which is an actual physical book again beautifully made they still have it disney still owns this book and will occasionally put it on display for things pretty great awesome Yeah, we do have a mom status to start out. The queen, who is sometimes called Queen Leah in things I saw online, but she's never named in the movie. She is unable to have a child for years, but then finally she has baby Aurora. So this is all part of the opening narration. (laughs) Yes. You get the most information about her. (laughs) Mom status almost silent. Yes. Mom status alive for the whole movie but barely there. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that is one line of criticism uh, against this movie. It is not a very feminist film. So there's a lot (laughs) to say the least. There's a lot of feminist critique of this movie of Sleeping Beauty as a character uh, of the mom not existing, which is fair. I mean, it's, it's all fair criticism. I don't Mm -hmm. want to, to deny it. And it's what this one has potentially more female characters than male characters. Yes, and the other thing is you have to consider the original fairy tale, which is horrific. And extremely basic, too. But yeah, the the original fairy tale is 
Much worse. <laughs> Not for kids. The Sleeping Beauty story is somewhat problematic from that perspective. Mm-hmm. This is arguably the best version of it. So their daughter is Aurora, named after the dawn, also named after what she's called in the Tchaikovsky ballet. Mm-hmm. But b- bullet, what the <laughs> heck? I... And uh, this is our first song, I believe, which yes. I just think of as Hail to the Princess Aurora. That is what it is called, in fact. Great. Hail to the pod. Hail <laughs> to the cat. Could have done that one. Didn't. Yeah. By the way, that's something I forgot to mention when we were talking about the music. We mm-hmm. talked about in the Snow White episode how that was the first movie with a soundtrack release. Yeah. This is the first movie with a score release. Yeah. Snow White and the previous Disney movies had the songs with words. This mm-hmm. one actually has George Brun's instrumentation. Very good. Well, the entire thing flows from song to song so much. I don't know how you'd cut it. I did want to mention that even in the opening credits song, it does start with Once Upon a Dream, but then it continues more like an overture. Yeah. Which we haven't had on most of the opening credits songs. Also, credit to the voice actors, which is always appreciated. So the kingdom, King Stefan, his queen, and baby Aurora, and the neighboring kingdom, the king is King Hubert, his son, Prince Philip, Prince Philip's mother's status unknown (laughs) never mentioned i'm gonna presume dead because or most likely we are animating so many other characters already if we add one more this movie will never get finished (laughs) sure maybe she's at home actually running the kingdom yep while her shiftless husband goes and gets drunk with his buddy That is one thing I picked up on in this rewatch that I didn't really think about previous times I had watched this movie is how the threat of war hangs over everything. A little, maybe. Because it seems like these two neighboring kingdoms, they're not really getting along or historically they haven't gotten along as much. And so Prince Philip is like already betrothed to Princess Aurora. Yeah, from the day she was born. Because they want their kingdoms to be united into one kingdom. These two tiny neighboring kingdoms, maybe in the past they haven't got along, but these two kings are buddies. And it's weird to think about now, right? Because most of the time when you think about a kingdom, they're wanting to go off and conquer other kingdoms to make them part of their own. But these two guys want to join their kingdoms together into one by marrying their kids together. And that idea does drive a lot of the plot machinery a lot more than I'd realized. Mm -hmm. We do get... The great moment here, and it's just the right amount of a joke. It's so perfect, Mm -hmm. which is where Prince Philip looked unknowing on his future bride. Yeah. And he just wrinkles his face. Yeah. (laughs) Just a little bit. He's not like too much. He's not totally disgusted. Yep. It's not super cartoony. He's just like, it's baby. Oh, I'd have to be here. It's a baby. And that is, this is an extremely funny movie, but the humor always feels perfectly calibrated. Yeah, there's a lot of sophisticated acting in the animation. Absolutely. Subtle acting, not just over the top. And that's one thing we didn't talk about with this scene, because we can't talk about with every scene. But obviously, Mm -hmm. uh, this opening sequence is one of the best looking things ever put to film. (laughs) It really is. All of the people moving in, one of my favorite little things is the knights Mm -hmm. that just look incredible they're like these pitch black Mm -hmm. i don't know it's 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 amazing it all looks great always yeah i guess we just have to take it as red did you pause the movie at any moment 
It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And the backgrounds. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean. You could get lost in them. They are paintings. They're like behind me in my office. I have an oil painting I really love that's a picture of a ship. And what I love about it is that like I can look at it and always kind of find new details. Mm-hmm. Like good paintings have that quality where you don't get tired of looking at them. And mm-hmm. that is what these backgrounds are. And yeah. that's what Walt wanted to achieve. And they nailed it. Yeah. They show on some of the special features for the movie, Ivan Earl, actually his method of painting the bushes or whatever and trees, he would start with a black blot and just layer on top of it, layer after layer after layer after layer of leaves and stems and whatever. And you think, oh, it's do- it's done now. No, he's got like five more layers to go. It Oh, it looks great. He must be. No, he's still going. There's more layers. And that's why it took so long. But that's why it's so gorgeous. And that's why all the other Disney artists were like, can't we stop at like the third layer? It's no. visibly a bush. Calm no. down. No. All the layers. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether. The three up. good fairies. And we don't really know what their deal is, what their relationship is to the power structures of this world. It's not important. Correct. Doesn't matter. They're fairies. They're good. That's the thing about this movie. They're like, we can each only give one gift. Yep. What? You just have to accept it. Right. These are unknowable creatures. Mm-hmm. They don't understand the human world. We don't understand theirs. Yep. So then we have the song, The Gifts of Beauty and Song. Which has some of the most surreal visuals of the movie. Yeah. Just as she's receiving these gifts. So Flora gives beauty and Fauna gives song. Mm -hmm. And as she's receiving the gifts, it is just crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's like all these different surreal images overlaid on top of each other. Yep. It's just, I I think of it as the, the magic imagery. So I want to ask, what do you think Meriwether was going to give? I don't know. I always wonder because you think about flora, flowers, beauty, Mm -hmm. fauna, animals, birds, song, you know. And Meriwether is in charge of file not found. (laughs) What is is her deal? The elements? Like actual weather? So maybe she was going to give her the gift of sunshine <laughs> maybe it's like a uh, a, a sunny personality <laughs> i'll tell you i like to think that she would give her the gift of like sense <laughs> exactly and then we would have For avoided reals. a lot of this movie <laughs> yes the gift of intelligence and practicality <laughs> right. who knows we don't ever know what meriwether was going to give her because maleficent arrives I did want to say real quick, Meriwether immediately stands out from the good fairies because she's like constantly a step behind them. Mm -hmm. She arrives a little late. She curtsies last. Yeah. It's a good way to set this character apart. And this was one thing. Walt wanted the three fairies to look interchangeable. Yeah. And it was supposedly Frank Thomas. Mm -hmm. Frank Thomas was the one credited with being like, nope. They're going to look different. And have different personalities, too. And he was one of their main animators Mm -hmm. throughout. So once again, he gets the best characters. Yeah. They did be on the lookout, right, for different personalities for these. And they went through some different ideas before settling on what they did. And I'm glad they ended up where they did (laughs) because they're very good. Right. And it's, it's a type of comedy trio that you don't see a lot, at least in Disney movies, I think. Mm -hmm. But as you say... Probably the best character design in the movie. Oh, yeah. Possibly the best character in the movie. Mm-hmm. Maleficent. Yep. 
And her raven, who also has a name that you never hear in the movie, Diablo. And Maleficent, I mean, she is just pure presence. Yeah, she really is. Part of it is the animation. Part of it is Eleanor Audley really giving just an incredible performance. Makes Mm -hmm. the Lady Tremaine performance I was heaping a lot of praise on look like garbage. (laughs) She's just so deliciously evil. She's just enjoying every sentence. Yeah. And Maleficent, I mean, her... She is scorned here, but throughout, her motivation is just kind of like, I love evil. Exactly. Like, she's a supernatural force. Again, it's beyond our knowing. Mm -hmm. Yep, she is presumably also a fairy, but her name is Maleficent, so she's the fairy of bad. (laughs) Yes. And she was not invited Mm -hmm. to the party. And Meriwether says, you're not wanted. (laughs) Yes. Which I'm like... You're this not is wanted. one of the few times when I want to be like, maybe, okay, shh, shh, shh. <laughs> I feel like maybe Maleficent can't kill the other fairies. Yeah. Maybe that's it. That's why they're willing to talk back and stuff. It is like, play it cool. <laughs> We're parents in a Disney movie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm worried. Luckily, they don't get dead. <laughs> yeah and she gives this amazing curse like it's a great speech mm-hmm. just a great bit of dialogue and she apparently has the strongest magic like yeah. again we're just kind of learning these rules as they come up where it's like none of us can undo her curse the curse yeah. of course being before her 16th birthday she will prick her finger on a spindle and die yeah and she disappears and every time maleficent you know teleports somewhere she leaves behind a weird symbol, which is a really cool visual idea, especially how it pays off. Mm-hmm. She turns into this like weird shape, kind of X shape. Mm-hmm. I love how her cloak and everything already is like flame shapes and mm-hmm. just the way everything about her moves, her clothes and everything. Right. And originally the inside of her cloak was going to be red to emphasize the fire idea, but mm-hmm. I forget who it was now. Somebody had the idea to make it purple, and it was correct. Yeah, her colors are like purple, black, and this kind of sickly lime green. Mm-hmm. I don't want to just call it lime green because that makes it sound good. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the color is just creepy on its own. Yeah, but what Meriwether can do is turn the curse from death to sleep. Yeah. And of course, true love's kiss. We'll wake her up. Imagine that. Yep. And so her, her little version of the song is called True Love Conquers All, unsurprisingly. I think of this, though, this theme the musical theme as the spell music, because you hear it here when all three of the fairies cast their spells. Plus you hear it later when they're putting everybody to sleep. Mm-hmm. It's just the spell sound of their magic. <laughs> and then <laughs> King Stefan has the completely whack idea of burning all of the <laughs> spinning wheels in the kingdom, which is another great visual like the wheels are also colorful they are also like purple and black and red and whatever and doesn't make sense who cares right how are they gonna have clothes who knows maybe they have to order from other kingdoms that is totally not important you just go with it but now we have the three fairies discussing plans and again like they're high up in this castle there's tapestries on the walls the fire is happening outside so there's that fiery glow Mm -hmm. the three of them are just having a conversation that's what this scene is but there's still so many visual ideas packed into it Mm -hmm. trying to come up with a better idea to protect aurora than just 
burning all the spinning wheels. And here we get the concept that they can shrink themselves and Flora again being associated with flowers where she thinks let's turn her into a flower. But then Meriwether points out Maleficent sends the frost. So Maleficent apparently is in charge of winter also. (laughs) I guess. I think she could just do anything that's bad. Exactly. Does it kill flowers? Then she can do it. Yes. I forgot to mention earlier, I tried to write down, I believe I got every time Meriwether says, ooh, and Mm -hmm. does the little shake. Does the Merryweather. Yes. Uh, So the first time is when Maleficent refers to the good fairies as the rabble. Yes. And the second time is uh, somewhere in here. She does it five times. I I counted how many times. That's what I got to. I didn't make note of exactly when they were. Merryweather is really being very funny here. Like these are some of the first laugh out loud moments. Flora is the leader. She's the one who's bossy and in charge Not all her ideas are great or practical, but she is definitely the one who's the boss of these three. Fauna is very kind and sweet, but also kind of a scatterbrain, it seems like. A little spacey. Very spacey. That is her character. And as we said before, Meriwether, she's the practical one. She's the one who seems the most intelligent sometimes. She's the one who can just get things done. Right. But it is Flora's idea that they become... Like three peasant women living in a cottage in the forest, raising a foundling child, Princess Aurora. (laughs) I forgot to mention also the third ooh is during the conversation about sending a frost. So there's two, two Merryweathers in this scene. Yeah. But also Fauna, I really like the little moment where she's talking about how Maleficent must be very unhappy. Yeah. Because it is kind of true later in in a very brief moment I really like that we'll talk about. But it is nice to get that kind of, not exactly characterization, but it is, I don't know, it feels real. Mm -hmm. And as you say, Fauna is just so sweet. Mm -hmm. How can you not love her? Flora, I don't know. (laughs) You don't like her so much? I mean, I like her in this movie. Like I said, there's nothing in this movie I don't like. Mm -hmm. This is not going to be like me and the mice from Cinderella. Mm -hmm. But she is the annoying one. (laughs) Because she is the leader and she is bossy. And she's also wrong about almost everything. (laughs) But yes, she has the idea, let's pretend to be peasant women, let's not use our magic, which makes it harder for Maleficent to find us, Yeah, and let's raise Aurora under the name Briar Rose, which is her name in the Brothers Grimm version of the fairy tale. Yeah. And somehow this is better than (laughs) keeping her safe in a castle, and don't worry about it. Don't think about it. This is a real don't worry about it moment. Yep. If we didn't have this idea, we wouldn't get some great stuff. So correct, we're doing it. <laughs> uh, and we get the first little instance where when Flora turns Fauna and Meriwether into peasant women, she turns Meriwether's outfit pink. Instead of blue, yes. She's going to come up again. Yes, and Meriwether's like, no, turns herself blue. <laughs> yes, and they don't really call attention to it yet, but it is nice. Yeah. That we set that up. Mm-hmm. Somehow they convince King Stefan and Queen One Line of this <laughs> of this choice. Yep. So we see them sad as they watch their baby disappear into the night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even the narrator's lines are great. <laughs> yep. Sixteen years later, we're at the Forbidden Mountains. Yes, where Maleficent lives with her goons. We gotta talk about the goons. <laughs> Her weird goblin army that yes. has like beaks and they're all the kind of brownish green. Mm-hmm. 
And they apparently have got maybe two brain cells to rub together between them. This is one of the funniest moments in this. I love it so much. She's like, it's almost 16 years. She's like, it's incredible. How can you not have found her in 16 years? There are so many of you dumb goons. (laughs) You've searched the entire kingdom. And they're like, yes, everywhere. We searched every crater. (laughs) And she's like, cradle. I can't even do it the way she does it. But like she squeaks way up and she never apparently corrected their instructions each year to be like, now you're looking for a one year old. (laughs) Now a two year old. (laughs) Right. And she has the amazing line where she says that they are a disgrace to the forces of evil. I wrote that one down, too, because it's so good. (laughs) sucks <laughs> i just love that voice at every cradle yes i can't remember who it is and he does some other voices i think he's the crocodile announcer in robin hood that we're gonna see later yeah and he has Presenting. yeah he has another voice that i've forgotten at the moment but yeah is he fidget in great mouse detective or is that somebody imitating him but it's um, the same voice gonna have to check it's like tools i got tools gears I got gears. It is. You are correct. It is him doing fidget. It's Candy Candido. And he also does the Indian Chief in Peter Pan. I knew he was in something we'd already watched. Yeah, you're right. It is the same voice. That's probably why I forgot who it was. But he is indeed fidget in The Great Mouse Detective. Good ear there. We will also hear him in The Black Cauldron, apparently. And he's in The Rescuers. Well, keep an eye out for it. I mean, it's such a distinctive voice. It is indeed. But yeah, so now she's sending uh, Diablo, which she clearly should have done in the first place, if not gone herself. At the peasant cottage is Aurora's birthday. Yep. uh, Briar Rose, as they Mm -hmm. call her now. And they send her for berries (laughs) while they prepare the birthday. Yes, they're making plans. And of course, it's Meriwether who is like rolling her eyes at the others because they can't come up with an excuse to send her out of the house. (laughs) This scene kind of implies that Meriwether has been doing 100% of the chores. It's true, which she was the one asking the questions back at the beginning. Who's going to do all these things? And Flora's like, oh, we'll all chip in. But then you kind of get the impression, it's never stated for sure, that Meriwether has been doing all of the cooking, all of the sewing, Uh, ever since they have moved out here because Flora wants to make the dress and Meriwether says, you can't sew and Fauno is going to bake the cake. And she says, and you've never cooked. Right. And Flora's just like, well, it's her last chance where, you know, our time out here is almost done. So give her the opportunity. Apparently they've never paid attention while Meriwether did these chores either. (laughs) I guess. And that's, or or Aurora's been doing all of it. I don't know. I mean, somebody's got to have been. From babyhood. Obviously, the fairies are still wearing the same identical clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, their clothes are just magic and they just stayed perfect forever. But somebody has had to make clothes for Briar Rose as she grew up. It's definitely Meriwether. It's definitely that's, and Mary. that's what's so great about this comedic dynamic. Meriwether is the funny one, right? Like she's, they're all kind of funny, but yeah. she's the one who really gets the punchlines that you laugh at. <laughs> Normally that kind of character, the quote unquote funny man, is the stupider one, yeah. right? But in this case, she's the smart one. She's paired with two. It's not exactly that they're stupid again. It's more like they just don't know how the world works yeah. because they have phenomenal cosmic power yeah so it's it's really 
a nice idea to have the funny man be the smart one. Mm-hmm. And it gives her some dignity as a character. Yeah. I'm glad she's not the dumbest, littlest, stupidest right. one or anything. Yeah, she's not like the bear kid from Peter Pan or whatever. Right. So they want Meriwether then to just be the dressmaker's dummy. <laughs> and also, teasp- I every time any recipe has a teaspoon in it, I, I think teasp, because <laughs> that's Fauna here is like, one teasp. Teasp? One teaspoon, of course. And yeah, I mean, this is all incredibly funny. Yeah, yep. there's a lot of a lot of funny business going on. Anybody who knows anything who's watching how they're doing all this is like, oh, oh, no, <laughs> because the way Flora thinks you make clothes is so wrong. The way Fauna is folding eggs, raw eggs with the, the shells cake. not taken <laughs> off into the cake. Three cups. She uses three different cups. <laughs> We're going to have some other business here. And then, of course, what's so fun is we cut back and it's the worst. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> you just see how bad it's gone. Yeah. But now we go off and we actually spend some time with Briar Rose. Princess Aurora has almost the least lines of any Disney main character. The one with the least lines is Dumbo because he doesn't talk. Well. <laughs> but she's not in it very much. And she doesn't even have any more lines after... They take her to the palace later. You don't think about it that she doesn't actually talk, but she doesn't. But it's crazy. She's still great, even though she has a very small part. Right. Which is where, like, the the feminist critique of this movie comes in. Like, Cinderella has a little more agency and personality. Yep. But that's okay. This movie made the choice to be about the fairies, and I think that's a fine choice. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Mary Costa is an amazing singer, and that's what we're here for. Exactly. So she's singing, of course, as she's out in the forest and further away, Prince Philip actually hears her and starts looking for her. The first named prince in a Disney movie. I know. And the first one to have a personality. Yay, finally. Though we don't actually know technically that it's him yet. We don't get introduced to him till much later. But of course, you know, it's Prince Philip. Like, who else is it going to be? Yeah, I forget that they're kind... I don't know if the movie's really trying to hide that fact, Mm -hmm. but at least the characters don't know that fact. Correct. I think you would have to be quite foolish to not get that that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. By the way, Prince Philip was in fact named after Prince Philip, the ancient lich who was recently put to rest at time of recording a uh, <laughs> member of the British monarchy. But they did name this character after him. Yep. Specifically. Because that was the royal who most Americans were familiar with at the time, apparently. He even has a horse that has a name. His horse's name is Samson. Yes. I forgot how much this horse is the template for the Tangled horse. Yeah, I was actually making note of that. Do you think he was the inspiration for Max in Tangled? 100%. Yeah, I couldn't find anything like for sure, but he is so like it. I don't know if he was the inspiration so much as they were like, let's just do that. (laughs) Inspiration is a code word for ripping off, which I mean, that's how Disney has always been like. This movie is ripping off Cinderella and Snow White, so tit for tat. Yes. But yes. The evil queen had a raven. Maleficent has a raven. (laughs) Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. And of course, Briar Rose has animal friends, just like both of the other previous princesses. Gotta have it. Yep. So she's singing, I wonder. This is kind of her wish song in a way, you know, wondering why she doesn't have somebody to love. Then she says she has met someone in her dreams. Yes. There's a lot of owl business here. There's an owl who, you know, 
I don't know if you know this. Owls say who. They do. And that sounds like an English word. <laughs> and that's what we got going on here. Yes. The owl and the squirrel that are her friends. We're pretty much going to see them again, I think, in Sword in the Stone. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> they look very similar to the the characters there. Uh, obviously, this is the uh, part of the movie where the animals steal clothes. Yeah, they do. They steal Prince Philip's clothes and dress up in them to dance with her, which I thought is a bit like the dwarfs dancing with Snow White. And featured on one of the most common posters for this movie at time of (laughs) release was Sleeping Beauty dancing with Prince Muppet Man. And I was like, (laughs) okay. Yep. And that's when she sings Once Upon a Dream. And it's interesting that she dreams of a prince. As far as she knows, she's a peasant girl. But in her dreams, it's a prince. Yep. And uh, of course, Prince Philip shows up. Because he followed the animals. (laughs) He joins in the song, starts dancing, kind of cuts in basically. Yes. But it's all good. She's a little scared at first. And then she's like, okay, I'll go with it. Right. And it's nice that they have this very lovely little romantic connection. It's Mm -hmm. especially nice that before, you know, the true love's kiss, the wake up kiss. Yeah. They know each other. Mm -hmm. They clearly have a lot of romantic affection for each other. Yeah. They've had some time to get to know each other a little bit, though they don't talk a lot. And they don't even ask each other their names. Because when he does ask her name... She panics <laughs> and runs off because she's not supposed to speak to strangers. Yeah, and that is like, if you wanted to poke logic holes in this movie. Yeah, I've been living alone in my home for 13 months now, and I feel like I'm going to eat my own leg. Mm. And that's with virtual human contact. She hasn't met anyone ever, just her and the three peasant women. Yeah. And she seems not completely insane. But maybe that's why she's having weird dreams and dancing with owls. Maybe that's... <laughs> Yeah, but she also, he's like, when am I going to see you again? And she's like, never, never. Oh, never. I mean, I, tonight. I love the way she's like, oh, never. Yeah. And he's like, never. And he, she's like, well, maybe someday. He's like, tomorrow. And she's like, no, tonight. <laughs> right. Never in a few hours. <laughs> it's great. I mean, it's fairy tale romance. Yeah, you love it. You do. We get back to the cottage. And this is where, again, the cake and the dress. Oh, so bad. And Meriwether is making a face that gave me a a hearty chuckle. (laughs) Very grumpy sort of a face. The dress is the most dreadful thing. The stitches are so loose. The cake, she has put it together in layers, frosted it, put candles on it, and not baked it. (laughs) (laughs) Sliding down a broom. and, uh, And... (laughs) Meriwether's like, hey, I just had a great idea. Forget this. I'm going to get the wands and we're going to do this right. There was probably a balance between disastrous manual cake and dressmaking Mm -hmm. and let's completely give away our position. Yeah. Let's make ourselves visible from space. (laughs) And this is the fourth Meriwether. Yes. uh, Because she has to clean the room. And so... Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yes, basically. because Sorcerer's Apprentice, but it works. Flora is still going to do the dress and Fauna is still going to do the cake. But Meriwether now just has to clean. But at least she can use magic to do it. They do block the windows and doors and everything and try to make it so no sign of the magic can escape. And they do fairly well until Meriwether, noticing that Flora is making the dress out of pink fabric still, 
makes it blue. Mm-hmm. Flora, of course, is like, no, pink. And then they get into this battle right. that just gets more and more. First, it's just funny and silly and they're laughing. And then they just get more and more frustrated and angry at each other until the sparks of magic are flying everywhere and going up the chimney, which they forgot to block. Guess who's flying by? Diablo the Raven. Though really, as you said, you can see them from outside the forest. Right. That's we get this great quote unquote, let's call it a helicopter shot. And so they give away their position to Diablo. The dress ends up this half pink, half blue splatter, which is a good look. Like, I feel like (laughs) that would that would uh, fly today. And apparently the idea for this came from the fact that the animators couldn't decide what color they wanted the dress to be. And so they actually put that into the story that the dress would get its color changed several times. Meriwether gets the last word and turns the dress blue. So it spends most of the movie blue. Yes, as it should. As it should. Her blue dress is much prettier than her pink dress, I have always thought. I'm definitely on Meriwether's side in this case. (laughs) I just looked it up, and uh, yes, the like splattered pink and blue dress, there are many variations of this you can buy IRL. Oh, that's great. Because, of course. Yes. So they tell her the truth in the worst, most useless possible way. Briar Rose enters. She's like, I've met this guy. I think we're in love. I want to bring him over, introduce him. And they're like, hmm, that's not going to work because uh, you're a princess. And betrothed. And you're betrothed to a prince. And you're going to marry him tonight, and we're going to take you to the castle, and your entire life has been a lie up to this point. Yeah. And Brad Rose is like, hmm, I think I will obviously cry about this. Yeah. And the raven hears the whole reveal, including the fact that whoever it is she has met is coming to the cottage tonight. Yes, of course. And now, uh, scumps. (laughs) But now we go to the kings singing... Scumps, the drinking song. (laughs) Possibly the strangest scene in this movie. Never really made sense to me. I've learned to just accept it. Yeah, yeah. What is scumps? (laughs) It's apparently a toast word, like l'chaim, but for weirdos? (laughs) Hubert is definitely a weirdo. Yes, and there's also a minstrel in this scene who is extremely ridiculous. And is getting very drunk. Yes, on the fancy wine. (laughs) Good one. Hubert is all about, okay, now that your daughter's coming back, we need to get them married and in their own castle and making grandbabies. He's kind of the return of the king in Cinderella. A little bit. Not as much. Not as extreme. No one is as much. I mean, that guy would be too much for this movie, but... He's perfect for Cinderella. Yeah, but he's a little bit more like that. Whereas King Stefan is like, I haven't seen my daughter for 16 years. Can I please have her for a little while before you marry her off? Right. Apparently, Hubert is like, I want to get rid of my son. (laughs) Nowhere does anyone point out how Aurora might feel about this. The fact that her mind is going to be shattered. Well, King Stefan does kind of suggest it might be a bit of a shock. And that is when it causes Hubert to lose his temper. Right. And then we have a great scene of them fighting where Hubert is swinging a fish at Stefan, who's using a tray for a shield. 
They're just a bit drunk here. <laughs> to me, this scene reminds you of the like stakes of these inter-kingdom politics and like the threat of possibly war, mm-hmm. which means that when they're talking about, you know, Prince, you can't just marry some pre- peasant girl. Aurora, you have to marry this guy immediately. Like Aladdin, you know, has the thing where Jasmine has to marry a prince. And it's just an arbitrary rule yeah. that ends when the Sultan is like, That's an arbitrary rule. What if we just didn't? With this, it's like, okay, there is a reasoning behind this. You know, it's (laughs) maybe for Hubert, you can interpret it as it's not just that he like wants babies or wants his son to get married or whatever, but it's also, we have to seal this contract. Right. Let's cement this alliance. Right. I love the the part though, after they're done fighting, because they start laughing and, you know, realizing how ridiculous they're being, where Hubert sheaths the fish in his belt. Yes. <laughs> Philip returns. He shows up. He's explaining, actually, uh, I'm going to marry this uh, girl I met in the woods whose name <laughs> I don't know. BRB. She's a some peasant girl. I love the line there. After all, father, this is the 14th century. <laughs> yes. One of the most famous, most quoted lines from this movie. And rightly so. It's a good one. And then the fairies and Aurora sneak into the castle. Yep. This is a very beautiful moment as they're sneaking. So much of this movie seems to take place at like dusk or with a red sky. Like it's very non-literal. Mm-hmm. And it's always very pretty. Yep. They leave her alone sobbing. After giving her a crown as a final present. The, the moment where they put the crown on too and she's just, she just feels nothing. And she's just, then she starts weeping and they leave her alone. But it's like, it's not yet sunset. <laughs> Protect her the whole time, but just let it go. Let it wash over you. Because of course, you have to have the part where she pricks her finger or it's not a Sleeping Beauty story. Right. I've just realized that I forgot to figure out what my favorite part of this movie is. There's oh. so many parts that stand out to You're me. right. The cake and dress stuff in the cottage, Mm -hmm. for sure, is a contender. But this moment is also a contender where she is entranced. Yes. And she is walking towards the spindle. This is a, like, creepy moment and so atmospheric and so good. Mm -hmm. Maleficent is, like, controlling her through these flashes of green smoke and light. The sound design as the good fairies are chasing her is great, where they're, like, all saying rose simultaneously... In this way that echoes. And the music is just so memorable to me. They're like, ah, done. Yeah. Ah, ah. It really is kind of, it is kind of spooky. It is very spooky. And I got chills during this scene too. Uh, And you also, I will say, ruined this scene for me forever. Oh, I did, huh? By pointing out the spellbound eyebrow. (laughs) (laughs) But how could you not have noticed it before? Aurora is following this like glowing spell ball that's luring her up through this tower. And whenever they show her face, it seems very frozen. But she has one of her eyebrows raised so high... She's doing like the the DreamWorks face almost. (laughs) I'd never thought about it. And now you all must notice the spellbound eyebrow. (laughs) And I like that she hesitates just before touching the spindle. Like there seems to be a moment where maybe she's... It's possible she heard Meriwether shouting, don't touch anything. She almost pulls back, but then Maleficent says, touch it, I say. And so she does. 
this is it's really powerful and effective not only that whole moment but then the good fairies arriving and maleficent is there and she swooshes her cloak to reveal that briar rose is asleep but looks dead yeah and it's really smart because like this is right as the sun sets so below mm-hmm. everybody's like hooray we did it aurora's fine and they're having this big celebration yeah and we juxtapose that with this really affecting like sadness of the good fairies who failed at the last second yeah and just thinking about it's almost giving me goosebumps again (laughs) that the comparison the contrast where everybody's like ray and they're like crying and they're like oh man it's a movie of primal emotions it just gets to you it's very good so they decide to put everyone to sleep until Rose awakens. Maybe the one good idea Flora has. (laughs) I feel like this idea makes sense. Because, again, it's like, well, if this marriage doesn't happen, what happens to these kingdoms, you know? I think there is a certain amount of sense in putting them to sleep. Now, in the original story, the whole castle is put to sleep for a hundred years. That would cause some problems. Fortunately, in this, it's just going to be a couple hours. Yeah. Just taking a nap. She Basically, she sleeps the night through because she pricks her finger right at sunset, pretty much. And she gets kissed with the dawn. And this is a lovely song and sequence. It's the same spell song as earlier with the gifts. And as they put everyone asleep, like everything turns green. Miraculously, when they put the guards who have like these giant halberds and axes (laughs) to sleep, nobody gets killed. Well, I would assume that's part of the spell, right? Perhaps. Fall asleep, but don't kill yourself as you do it. Don't fall asleep on your axe. Yeah. And Flora manages to hear about Philip from King Hubert as he's falling asleep that he met a peasant girl in the forest and she puts two and two together and realizes that Briar Rose and Philip must have been the ones who met. So she rushes back to the other two fairies and tells them we have to get back to the cottage, find Prince Philip. And Prince Philip is at the cottage and he gets caught. Yeah, because Maleficent knew about it first. And she was already there waiting. With her goons. And despite being ambushed by the goons, he takes out a couple dozen goons, (laughs) it feels like. Just because they are so useless. And this is like, this may be Maleficent's one flaw, is how utterly useless the goons are. It's true. They are indeed a disgrace to the forces of evil. Mm -hmm. But they do manage to get him captured. And she's also surprised that it's Prince Philip. She just knew it would be some guy. But even the way she says it is great. And lo, I catch a prince. Yes, like I said, every single line reading is tremendous. I think she's the best performance in this movie. Yeah. A lot of great performances. Of course, we love Barbara Luddy as Meriwether Mm -hmm. for always. Mm -hmm. But I think she's just unmatched. Yep. Because she's such a great villain, it makes everything else better because they're going to defeat her. Spoilers. Gasp. (laughs) Yeah, and so now they have to infiltrate the Forbidden Mountain. It's a good little scene of them sneaking in, and they shrink tiny, which we've seen them do earlier in the movie. And the goons are dancing and celebrating, and this is a small moment I love, which is that Maleficent looks bored. Mm -hmm. But she perks up when she has the idea to go torment Prince Philip. And it's a good way, because obviously, again, Maleficent doesn't have a ton of characters. She kind of just loves evil, Mm -hmm. it seems like. But it's really good visual characterization there where it does seem like basically she's just bored unless she's doing something sadistic. And it ties in with what 
Fauna said about she, how she must be very unhappy. Yeah. Like, she's not really happy. She doesn't have anything in her life. She doesn't have friends. She's just has the goons who clearly suck. Yeah. So all she has is, if I can make someone else feel worse. <laughs> yep. So she goes down to the dungeon to taunt Prince Philip with the knowledge that the peasant girl he met and the Princess Aurora, who he's betrothed to, are the same person. Then she tells him of her plan to release him in a hundred years. And you get to see kind of an image of what her imagining is. She's describing, you know, him riding off on his noble steed, so old and bent and going off to wake his love, who's ageless in sleep. It's this horrible idea. And again, this was inspired by the real life Prince Philip. <laughs> Living to be a hundred years old. <laughs> Almost. Almost. This monologue is amazing. This whole kind of creepy fantasy is amazing. This whole torture, mm -hmm. you know, really highlights how evil she is. And then I love how she leaves and goes, A most gratifying day. For the first time in 16 years, I shall sleep well. Yep. Famous last words. She's so fundamentally miserable. Yeah. That's how I read all this. So the fairies free him. They give him a shield of virtue and sword of truth. They tell him that they're not going to be able to help him on, like, escape and help him in this big final action scene. And then they do nonstop constantly. Yeah, but it's okay. <laughs> they are the main characters of this movie. I mean, here they are a lot more interchangeable. They don't really show their separate characters much in this, but it's okay. Diablo, the raven, is suspicious and he actually catches them escaping. So he sets up the alarm, starts squawking as they're trying to get away. The fairies, of course, as you said, are doing plenty of things to help from turning arrows into flowers and blocking hot oil with a rainbow. And <laughs> Meriwether gets her moment here. Yes. Diablo just keeps squawking and squawking and she's trying to stop him because, of course, he's setting up the alarm. And she's chasing him. She does her frustrated, ooh, like for the fifth and final time. And she does it silently. She doesn't say, ooh. She yeah, just but she does still the does gesture. the gesture, yeah. which is... No, it counts, yeah. but yes. Flying and just chasing all around and around. And finally, she... <laughs> what? I'm doing the crow noise. Oh, That's okay. all. I'm trying to... <laughs> <laughs> so she finally catches him and hits him with her magic and turns him to stone right outside Maleficent's room. And she's, you know, very self-satisfied with that. She stopped him. She got him. She flies off. Maleficent comes out and is like, stop all this racket. And she sees Diablo is turned to stone and she's like, <gasps> so she, you know, maybe actually she cared for him. Right. Again, it's a, it's a really good balance here where it doesn't seem like she's like, oh no, the one thing I loved, but she is actually... If nothing else, she's like, ugh, my one competent henchman. Exactly. She climbs the tower, the music swells, and now she's like, all right, listen. Yeah, you cut down a forest of goons. Mm -hmm. Now it's time for an actual threat. She casts lightning at them. Yep. She makes the forest of thorns. The prince is managing to get past all this. With a little help from the fairies, of course. And it should be said explicitly, this is by far the best action scene in any Disney movie we've covered so far. It is. It's a great action scene. There have been some good ones. Like, the final action scene of Peter Pan is pretty good. But this one, the way it gives every character something to do, the way the music ties into mm -hmm. it, the actual peril involved, mm -hmm. the speed of it, the choreography, mm -hmm. it's all just a cut above. And interestingly, the animators knew when they did this scene sequence 
there are plot holes in it. You're like, how is he managing to get through the forest of thorns and, you know, his horse isn't getting cut to ribbons and, you know, all that stuff. They don't care. You don't care. You just go with it. And you never see him get fully through the forest of thorns. It's just every scene is paced out so well. You get just enough of the peril to accept it all. And it is very well done. It's a tapestry. Mm -hmm. It is. is. It's tapestry storytelling. It is. You just assume the parts you can't see. And then, of course, he's getting through the forest of thorns. So she appears before him and... Now you shall deal with me, O prince, and all the powers of hell! And then she bursts into dragon form. Yes, and we realize that that shape she always turns into when she teleports, that is what, like, she turns into that, and then that turns into the dragon. Yeah, it's like basic dragon form. And this is where you and I both got goosebumps, because it is just... It's so powerful. It's amazing. I mean, even though it is just, yeah, it's a guy with a sword versus a dragon. Mm. It's like the most staid fantasy trope, but it's cool. It is. And her fire is green, that same sickly green color of her magic. And it's obviously magical or hot fire because it's even burning like the stones of the bridge. It's such a powerful Mm. fire. And they're going all over, back and forth with the fighting. I mean, not going to give you a blow by blow. But of course, at the end, Philip throws the sword, stabs her in the heart. She falls and dies. And the thorns go away. The colors of everything change. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, basically wrap things up. He kisses Aurora. She wakes up and smiles. (laughs) Everyone else is woken up. The parents get to hug their daughter who they haven't seen for 16 years once. Yep. And that's enough of that because she's got makeouts to get to. <laughs> Aurora and Philip are dancing as the movie is ending. Meriwether and Flora notice the, uh, well, first, I guess Flora notices that the dress is blue finally after this whole thing and changes it pink again. And so the movie ends as their dress keeps changing back and forth between blue and pink. I always think it's funny that nobody else seems to notice the color is changing. (laughs) I actually really like Fauna's last moment Mm -hmm. where she's crying because she just loves happy endings. Yeah. And it is like you feel relieved. Like that Mm -hmm. action scene is so tense and the colors are so insane and everything. It feels like you are in hell. Mm -hmm. And so this final scene, as much as it is kind of a perfunctory Disney ending as is like it's it's again, it's a good balance of we're not wasting your time. You know how this ends from here. Yeah. But it gives you enough time of the niceness. It gives you enough of that, like, good feeling mm-hmm. at the end that you do feel like, you know, ah, we are calmed down. We're out of all of that adventure. It's okay. And uh, I'm surprised they didn't correct this animation error, which is that in the last shot of the movie, the dress is pink. Uh, <laughs> Definitely an error. There's no way that Meriwether <laughs> did not win that fight. <laughs> Uh, I always imagine because it ends with them kind of like posed in a cloud, the clouds, like there's a drawing and then you see the book is slowly closing and the dress is still changing color. So the last one you see is pink. But if you're counting out the timing of the color changes before the book closes, but you can't actually see it, it has changed blue again. And then the book closes. That's that's That's... my headcanon right there. It ends up blue. This is what we think about, folks. It's true. I actually bought a a shirt. Was it at Disney World, I think, the last time we were there? 
I usually don't buy a lot of Sleeping Beauty, specifically Aurora Princess Aurora merch, because it always shows her in the pink version of the dress. That is not my favorite because they put Cinderella in a blue dress. So Aurora yeah. has to be the pink dress. Meh. <laughs> but I like her to be in the blue dress. Anyway, I got a shirt that fades from pink to blue. I mean, not changing color, yeah. but the color of the shirt starts pink at the top and is blue at the bottom. I was willing to get that one because it has both. There you go. <laughs> and you know what you're kind of talking about here? That t-shirt. Could be considered a spin-off, sequel, <laughs> remake, ride, or reboot. You could call it a ride. <laughs> if if you're wrong about things. <laughs> so sequel spin-offs, re- there's a ton. There's yeah. a ton. We can't go through all of them. And I, for once, I don't have, like, here's something hilariously awful. <laughs> I'll tell you, the most interesting thing to me was that the castle in Disneyland, which, as we said, you know, was kind of happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Remind me when Disneyland opened? 1955. Okay, so it was actually out, you know, four years before this movie came out. Indeed. (laughs) And originally it was going to be Snow White's Castle. They made it Sleeping Beauty's Castle before the movie came out. Yep. To promote this movie. Like, it was an ad for this movie. Mm -hmm. And it was considered a risky move at the time because they were like, nobody cares about Sleeping Beauty. (laughs) Pretty crazy. That was the most interesting park thing to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the main park thing, right? I mean, of course, Maleficent the Dragon is in Fantasmic. Yes, that is the main park thing is the Sleeping Beauty Castle. Beginning in 1957, they had the walkthrough attraction at Sleeping Beauty Castle where you could actually walk through the castle and over the gate and see little scenes from the movie with little open books telling you pieces of the story as you went through. And apparently those first couple years that they did this before the movie came out, people who did this attraction at the end got a really fancy art book like, you know, nice. as a giveaway at the end of the attraction. Yeah. And they did several things that they had to, like, remove almost immediately because they were causing backups in the lines too much. And that attraction was at Disneyland with a few changes until 2001 when they closed it for temporarily after 9-11. Ten years later, they revamped it and opened it up again, and it's still there now. The castle in Disneyland Paris is also Sleeping Beauty's castle, even though it's quite a different design. Because, of course, there are real castles in France. (laughs) They had to make it more interesting and fanciful. Yeah. I've seen pictures of the castle in Disneyland Paris, and it's quite beautiful. Someday maybe I'll get to go there, but who knows? You refer to Le Chateau de la Belle au Bois Dormant? Yeah, I was going to let you say that because you've actually studied French. <laughs> That's right. Also, uh, in Hong Kong Disneyland, originally they had Sleeping Beauty's castle, but they actually replaced it just last year with a different castle that they're calling the Castle of Magical Dreams, which highlights several princesses. It's not just one princess castle. And of course, the castle logo that you see, you know, before any Disney thing that you watch, with you know the arch that right. goes over it. Do 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 do. Exactly. Do, do, do. 
was originally Sleeping Beauty's castle and then was for a while more based on Cinderella's castle. And now it's just kind of an amalgam of it's a dis- the Disney castle now, right? But originally it was because of Sleeping Beauty castle. Yeah, and I gotta say, this new CG version of that castle, that's the suck. The blue <laughs> one with the light blue lines, that was the good one. <laughs> This new CGI one, it's too much. It's too busy. It's a too dramatic version of the song. No, thank you. That is my opinion. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about it. I thought it was pretty cool the first few times I saw it, but I, I think you, it sounds like you dislike it more than I do. I don't really think about it that much anymore, but the first couple times I was like, whoa, that's actually pretty cool. But I mean, I've seen the logo so many times. But you're right about like Maleficent being in Fantasmic. Maleficent always almost feels like one of the leaders of the Disney villains, right? Yes. Basically, you get most of the references to this. You've got Disney villains where you've got Maleficent. You've got Disney princesses where you have Aurora. Right. The Disney princess toy line Mm -hmm. that we've talked about a lot. And of course, you know, showing up in Ralph Breaks the Internet and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Once Upon a Time, of course. And uh, the villainous board game for Maleficent. Disney's House of Mouse, especially, there was a special Disney's House of Villains, yeah. which had all the Disney villains. And as you say, Maleficent is one of the, one of the, because I mean, she's, a lot of people consider her the best Disney villain, and it's hard to argue with mm-hmm. that. I mean, she's not my personal favorite, mm-hmm. which is a guy we'll get to, but. <laughs> she is definitely one of the best. Yes. She just serves the forces of evil. Yeah, she is the mistress of evil. She does call upon the powers of hell. Yep. All that great stuff. And she turns into a dragon, and that's cool. Yep. Come on, yep. she turns into a dragon. While we're talking about Maleficent, we might as well talk about Maleficent. <laughs> yes, because the remakes were actually quite different as opposed to several of the other Disney live-action remakes, which were too similar. They did Maleficent in 2014. 2014's Maleficent, the first... Delarm. Like, this was... Disney specifically announced a wave of, we're gonna make several live-action movies based on our animated films. Mm -hmm. I forget which all they announced initially, but the first two were Maleficent and Cinderella, which felt, as I talked about on the Cinderella episode, it felt like... So we're doing one that's very different. Yeah. Very different take on the material. And we're doing one that's a Disney live-action animated remake. Mm -hmm. Where we just do the same movie, but worse and uglier. <laughs> and we'll see which one does better. And Cinderella made all the money in the world. And they're like, okay, we'll do that forever now. And mm-hmm. somehow those keep making tons of money. But Maleficent... Now, I've only seen Maleficent once. It was in theaters. Once upon a time, we used to be able to go to movie theaters. Yeah. In 2014. I saw it once. I mostly liked it. Mm-hmm. I remember the CGI not being... I mean, of course, like, it doesn't have the tapestry look. It has the same plasticky CGI of all the Disney live-action stuff. Yeah. Including, I remember the good fairies looking the worst of anything. Yeah. I mostly like the movie Maleficent. It's an, definitely an interesting idea. I am very much not opposed to retellings of fairy tales. Telling right. it in a different fashion taking it from a different point of view. To me, the movie Maleficent does not like take over the movie Sleeping Beauty or it doesn't feel like it's, we're going to take it and tell it from a different point of view, but it's really the same story. I think of them as two totally separate retellings of the same story with a lot more inspiration from the Disney version than just from the basic fairy tale. 
Because, of course, Maleficent is a character original to this Disney version. Right. But there was always some sort of evil fairy or whatever who... Or, a witch. Usually she was a witch. Or sometimes yes. she's a not necessarily evil fairy, but is slighted because she's not... They forgot about her and didn't invite her. And so she comes up with the curse as a punishment for, like, well, you're not going to invite me to the christening. You're going to ignore me. I'm powerful. Right. I'm going to curse your baby who had nothing to do with it. Whatever. And so, of course, Angelina Jolie plays Maleficent. Mm-hmm. I Again, I also remember mostly liking yeah. this movie. Yeah, it's a good twist on the story. The way that it treats the three good fairies is the part I like the least because, number one, they look terrible. As you said, the CGI is not good. And I don't just have the memory from 2014. I actually rewatched them recently once Maleficent. So Maleficent, Mistress Male- of Evil, after is, it yeah. came out, the original Maleficent was not on Disney Plus yet. So we waited until they were both on Disney Plus and watched them. So it was not that long ago yeah. because I'm pretty sure it was within the last six months. Right. So they still look bad. Right. <laughs> They're just stupid. They're completely unintelligent right they have totally different characters meriwether is not here none of them even have that name which is actually good no, but they're not grass flittle and thistlewit yeah but yeah the the idea that the maleficent movie has is what if we take one of the most evil and scary disney villains a character who is just evil mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that's her whole thing mm-hmm. and give her motivation make her sympathetic and specifically it's her wings get stolen in a scene that is pretty harrowing and is very much intended to reflect, let's see, for our family-friendly podcast, I have to be careful, a very violent type of assault. Yes. Which is a really interesting idea. Like, regardless of whether or not that movie holds up, I'm sure it holds up as well as it did at the time, which Mm -hmm. is not the best movie ever, but a very interesting idea. You have to give it credit for trying to do something that different and strange. Yeah. With the material, and that's why it's more interesting to me still mm-hmm. than, you know, the ones that are just straight up remakes. I wish I'd had a chance to watch it in that sequel. I wanted to watch them before recording this podcast, but uh, did not have time. Yeah, so Mistress of Evil is okay. It's not as good as the first one. It has some really big action sequences and some interesting ideas as well. Uh, if you want, I can go into more of the story of it, but it's... Yeah, just give me the the highlights. What's it about? Is anyone singing Smells Like Teen Spirit in it or what? No, they are not. Maleficent Mistress of Evil is a little interesting to me now, just because when it came out, everybody was like, why does this sequel exist? Mm-hmm. Who wanted this? Like, this is just, yeah, another Disney movie. And now it's like, I would kill to watch Maleficent Mistress of Evil in theaters. <laughs> and that is not hyperbole. Yeah, so after... King Stefan's death, which I'm pretty sure happens at the end of Maleficent. Aurora is now the queen of the moors where the fairies and all the weird little creatures live and also her own kingdom. I don't recall if it has a name. So there's a neighboring kingdom, which is the home to Prince Philip. They think Maleficent is a villain and they don't like her. They think she's evil. Michelle Pfeiffer, though, plays Prince Philip's mother, Queen Ingrid, and she is the villain. She wants war with the Moors. She wants to defeat all these fairy creatures. Her husband, King John, he's not King Hubert, 
so sad. They just wimped out on that and didn't make him no Hubert. Scumps. No scumps. King John, he wants peace. And the king. So Prince Philip and Aurora are getting engaged. And so they're going to have a big engagement dinner. And Maleficent is invited as Aurora's guardian. You know, the closest thing she has to a mother at this time. Right, adoptive mother. Yes. I mean, I'm just looking for the gist of this. Basically, it's Angelina Jolie versus Michelle Pfeiffer. Exactly. Sounds great. The The first movie was more of this, like, character study. And mm-hmm. the second one's more of this big budget fantasy type movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Again, that sounds pretty fun. I'd watch that. Yeah. I want Michelle Pfeiffer to come back to movies, please. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'll give those a, a watch real soon. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I don't really have anything to say. I mean, there's there's video games. It had its own discrete board game from 1958 that looks incredibly boring. Mm-hmm. It's made by Parker Brothers, and it looks about as fun and about as complex as Candyland. <laughs> you walk around picking up cards until you get the one that says you win on it. That's funny. I did find an amusing thing of a little picture book called Maleficent's Revenge, part of Disney's scary storybook collection. Oh. I don't know when that came out. Tell me about this scary story. I can read you the whole synopsis for this. It's not long. Two years after the events of the film, Aurora and Prince Philip have married, and the couple as well as the entire kingdom are prepared to celebrate their anniversary. As the three good fairies begin work on the decorations, they notice their powers have been drained away. This was due to the solar eclipse. When such an event takes place, the fairies lose their magic and their spells are undone, much to Meriwether's discomfort. (laughs) I bet that looks great, I don't know. Meanwhile, at the Forbidden Mountains, Meriwether's spell over Diablo is broken, and the raven is revived from his petrification. Immediately, he begins searching for Maleficent, eventually finding her cloak with her staff nearby. And he manages to use the evil fairy's magic to revive his mistress. And together, the villainous duo makes their way to the kingdom, plotting to break Aurora and Philip apart and dominate the land. Oh, they didn't also resurrect the goons? (laughs) On the day of the celebration, Maleficent storms in and places a curse on the castle, turning everyone except Aurora into stone. Tortured and desperate, Aurora pleads for mercy upon Philip and her people, going so far as to ask the wicked fairy to turn her into stone as well. Maleficent refuses because she's unable to place a curse on the princess due to Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether's protection spell. She is able to grant a wish, resulting in Aurora sacrificing her life in exchange for her loved ones and people. Aurora is once again put into a sleep-like death. The kingdom's citizens are freed, including Philip, who rushes to the Forbidden Mountains to save his bride. There, a battle between Dragon Maleficent and the prince takes place again. The evil dragon attempts to bite Philip with her venomous fangs, but instead she bites her own tail and kills herself. (laughs) When Maleficent is defeated once and for all, Philip once again awakes Aurora with a kiss of true love. The end. See, th- this sounds like one of those direct-to-video sequels. Like that uh, could. There are no direct-to-video sequels. No, there are not. One, but surprisingly, if there was, that would that would be the plot of it. Exactly. Like hundred yep. percent. That's that's totally the. We're just doing the first movie again, but a little bit worse. I can see how cheap the scene of <laughs> the crow or the raven waking up Maleficent would look. Like I actually the saw the image of that. I think if you're on the Disney wiki and looking at Diablo's site, there's the image of the raven coming out of the stone. And I saw that and was like, what is this from? And that's what led me down the rabbit hole to find this synopsis. It's really great. Excellent. 
Sounds awful. Yep, sounds bad. Sounds like it would make kids actively dumber. <laughs> so let's not even waste time saying whether or not we would recommend this movie. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Would you show this movie to a child, though? Yes, I would. I can't remember when we first showed it to you. It is a little scarier at the end, of course, with Maleficent and the dragon and that whole battle. Yeah. So you might want to wait a little bit. I'm sure I would have bought the... The 2003 DVD version is, I believe, the version that I owned, that we owned when you were a kid, is what I'm trying to say. So you'd have been a little older, but seven-ish by the point when we got it, so probably old enough to watch it. (laughs) Yeah, it has, you know, some creepy and intense moments. Ah, But overall, (laughs) I don't think it's anything that's going to be a problem. I'd show this to a kid. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd make them watch it. I'd make them listen to this entire podcast so they can appropriately appreciate the amount of work that went into it. Pause it. Check out the grain on this tree bark. <laughs> exactly. Do you see? This was days of work. Let's talk about the human cost of the images <laughs> on screen, child. Ah, uh, we have fun here. And we'll have fun next week when we come back and watch 101 Dalmatians from 1961. What do you think of this movie, Mom? Quite the shift in tone and style. <laughs> but it's it's still a good one. Have fun talking about why we didn't let you guys watch it as much. <laughs> oh, really? I forgot about this. And I have a very special connection to the Delarm on this one. <laughs> yes. So there's a, that'll be fun. We'll be talking about all that this week. I just want to mention again... We are planning to do mailbag episodes in between the hiatuses going forward because the hiatuses between eras are probably going to be a little longer. We want to give you guys some kind of content in there. That sounds good to you. If you have a question you'd like to send to the podcast, please send it to memommouse at gmail.com. And this is an opportunity for you to ask us not only about the things we talk about on the show, but if you want to ask us about other Disney things like People are always asking me about Pixar, and I'm like, (laughs) I don't really want to do a Pixar podcast. You can make me talk about Pixar (laughs) by sending in your questions to memommouse at gmail.com. Yep. So we'll be back next week, of course, and until then, I'm me. I'm Mom. And it all started with a mouse. Mouse.